I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. It's summer. Should I do this uh, intro and segue into the topic like you? Sure. No, it's not. (laughs) It's winter. (laughs) I do not do that. That's not what I do. I do not blatantly say the exact opposite. (laughs) That's such bull... Summer is... I'm just sassy. (laughs) Summer is is so nice. The, the 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 trees are singing and the birds are buzzing. Oh, love love a good summer. And the pandemic is fuming. Mm-hmm. People normally take like vacations, sure, road trips, yeah, day trips. You venture out mm-hmm. to enjoy the weather. Glamping. That's a thing. That was a huge word for like two years. Yeah, and it needed to die. <laughs> Ideally. People are staying the hell home and not going out because there is a pandemic. We might have Kiwi listeners. They're fine. People in America, ideally, are staying home and social distancing and not seeing each other so we all don't die. Mm -hmm. You know, since we're not traveling, Mm -hmm. I thought, why not do an episode that's like its own little road trip? Sure, sure. So we on the road again. We are going to be visiting some different roadside tourist attractions. Moving right along with the two birds of a feather. We're in this together. And we know where we're going. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna we're gonna look at the history of some of these things you might go see. Sure. And the first thing we're gonna talk about is Lucy the Elephant in New Jersey. <laughs> Why would one so want to see... So we have to, to see... travel by map, because that's really far. Why would one <laughs> want to see Lucy the Elephant in New Jersey? Does she have especially good stories? Well, Lucy the Elephant... Does she bake cakes? ...is a six-story elephant-shaped building. Ah, okay. Uh, that is also considered the oldest surviving roadside attraction in America. Oh. Yeah. Because they didn't know where else to put her. Just stick her by the side of the road, I guess. This elephant-shaped building is about uh, 65 feet tall, Mm -hmm. uh, 60 feet long, and about 18 feet wide. It has about 22 windows. The the windows are so the giant veterinarian can, like, peek in there and see if everything's okay. You're a creeper. Okay. (laughs) Uh, So it was built in 1881, Mm -hmm. which I bet is a lot older than you were thinking it was. (laughs) You were probably thinking, like, hmm. 1920. I'm just wondering why it, it didn't burn down in a mysterious fire that, that made the builder a very rich man. So its sister elephant <laughs> building totally did burn down in a fire, but we'll get there later. Uh, so yeah, it was built in 1881. Uh, it said that it had about a million pieces of wood, mm-hmm. four tons of bolts and bars, 200 kegs of nails... Uh, and it is currently listed as the 12th tallest statue in the U.S. Probably the tallest one of an elephant, though, right? Now, yes. <laughs> Someone's uh, out here murdering giant <laughs> elephants, and I won't stand for it. No elephants were harmed in the creation of these buildings. Definitely, like, one of the, like, oldest things on the current list of, like, tallest U.S. things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was, it was built a couple of years before the Statue of Liberty. Ah, so take that, France. Yeah. 
So it was built uh, by James B. Lafferty. Uh, He was a Philadelphia engineer and inventor. And he originally came up with the idea as a way to draw attention to the land that he owed as like a way to, um, you know, draw potential development interest. What if my observation deck looked like an elephant? Exactly! <laughs> and you know what? Why not? Why not? And that was exactly it. Lucy's building was an elephant, but then it had, like, the thing that you put on top of elephants to, like, ride in. I don't know what the word is. Saddle? It's not a saddle. They call it something else because sure. it's, like, a canopy okay. thing. It's like, it's like a tent on yeah. top of the elephant. The elephant tent. Yeah. Yeah. And so they did have that on top, and that was, like, the observation deck. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, is what he would use it for, is bringing people there to, like, take them up and be like, look at all this property. Especially because I guess a lot of what he owned was at some times during the day, depending on the tide, not very accessible. <laughs> because it would get, like, cut off from the rest of land. Which is just what you want in your real estate <laughs> developments. <laughs> He hired a Philadelphia architect, William Free, to help him with the design. And uh, Lucy was modeled after Jumbo the Elephant, which was a very famous elephant from Barnum and Bailey's circus. Well known for being identical to nearly every other elephant. Like, who's going to tell? How are you going to know? Not in look, but like... (laughs) grandeur. Ah, I see. They could be like, oh yes, it's modeled after. And people would be like, ooh. Mm-hmm. Lafferty originally uh, did not name it Lucy. He named it the Elephant Bazaar, mm-hmm. which quite frankly is a boring name. Yeah. He designed it, it got built, and in 1882 he applied for a U.S. patent, which he got, and it gave him exclusive rights for 17 years to Make, use, or sell animal-shaped buildings. Because the way he reported the patent was, this one's an elephant, but it could be other animals, too. I mean, yeah, if you squint. (laughs) Basically, putting that wording in, you know, give or take the words, because I'm paraphrasing, allowed it to be open-ended that all animal-shaped buildings for 17 years had to go through him. (laughs) Even though he only designed an elephant one and he never designed any other animal. I'm gonna guess that that didn't come up much, though. Uh, So in 1884, uh, he granted uh, patent rights for construction of the Light of Asia, which was also known as Old Jumbo. Another elephant building um, that was a slightly smaller version of Lucy in a Mm -hmm. different part of New Jersey. Um, It was only about 40 feet tall. Uh, uh, What a shame. It was built by Theodore Reger, and he originally built it as a tourist attraction. Come to the elephant and look at the observation deck. There's a gift shop in its foot. (laughs) Um, But then it was later used for real estate development as well. You know, what elephant-shaped buildings were meant for originally. (laughs) This long and storied tradition. Hey, it is a long and storied tradition that real estate developers come up with some weird thing to slap on their property to get people to come even look at stuff. (laughs) Think about those houses from the World's Fair that are now in the middle of the Indiana Dunes National Park because some dude was trying to develop the land... And slap those houses there. 
So the light of Asia, mm-hmm. little aka jumbo. L- little old Jumbo, did not last very long. Mm-hmm. Uh, he w- was torn down within 16 years. Aww. Yeah. Uh, now in 1885. Uh, Lafferty also made the Elephantine Colossus, uh, which was also known as the Elephant Hotel at Coney Island. Mm. <laughs> um, it was a near exact replica of Lucy, but scaled so it was about twice the size. <laughs> um, it had seven floors of rooms, um, about like 31 different rooms in the body of the the elephant. Mm-hmm. Uh, each leg was about sixty feet in circumference. There was a cigar <laughs> store in one, a diorama in another, mm-hmm. um, and within the rest of the building, there was a concert hall, a bazaar, a gallery, an observatory. Whatever you could think of was there. A an, hotel, an actual live elephant. They couldn't get it to go up the stairs. Oh, the stairs okay. were like cork- corkscrew. <laughs> it was very difficult. Uh, and so this cost uh, about $65,000, which was a lot. I mean, it's enough to make a 122-foot tall elephant. Yeah, yeah, that would be a lot of money with, like, running water. And <laughs> I mean, I hope there was running water. I've, that'd be an awful, awful hotel room if it didn't. If I was making a giant elephant-shaped building that people could live in, I know where I would put the garbage chute. That's all I'm going to say. The butt or the trunk? <laughs> Obviously the butt. <laughs> well, I would thought I assumed the butt. But then I was like, well, the trunk goes closer to the ground. The trunk should be a slide. That's what it should be. Obviously. Yeah, and the butt is the trash chute. So I got we I have some pictures mm-hmm. that we do you want to see what it looks like actually? Sure. Real quick since we're here. I wish they would have given the Elephantine Colossus bigger eyelids, because it looks wide awake. <laughs> That elephant is wired. It was it was huge. It was <laughs> incredibly large. Um, mm-hmm. Some some people say that it was like visible, like the first thing immigrants could see, <laughs> you know, before the Statue of Liberty was built. Like yeah, they yeah. saw the elephant hotel. Fabrizio was like, "I see the Statue of Liberty, and was, what's her friend? An, <laughs> An elephant. elephant. <laughs> it's very little, of course. Yes. Yeah. Yes." So uh, the attraction, no matter how like amazing it was in size, didn't actually do that great in the long <laughs> run, because a lot of other more exciting things were being built on Coney Island, like a roller coaster, which if you notice in the picture I showed you, was literally built around it. Yes. The ori- Very good. The first pictures um, that were taken during construction, the roller coaster wasn't there. Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah, people are going to pay to go on a roller coaster, most likely, before they, like, yeah, let me go climb up that elephant's butt. No, 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 that's the garbage chute. You don't want to go that way. (laughs) So, by 1896, it was pretty run down. It was still operating, but it was, you know, not kept up that well. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, the hotel rooms and stuff, which I think is where, like, all the rumors that it was actually a brothel came out. Um, I can't, couldn't actually find any, like, information that actually stated it was a brothel. Who is staying two nights on Coney Island? Like, the whole point is it's it's the end of the streetcar line. You go for the day and then into the nightlife. People who 
don't live in New York? I guess. Who traveled in from somewhere else? Imagine having a wild night at Coney Island. You, you want to sleep it off somewhere. And who's there waiting for you in your time of need? A gigantic elephant. Yes. <laughs> uh, so unfortunately, later that year in 1896, it burned down. And I would like to show you another picture. Okay. Of it burning. <laughs> okay, th this is not a photograph. No. Th this is an illustration of the event. Uh -huh. <laughs> but this is if the Dread Pirate Roberts lived in Zootopia. That's what this is. It's freak there's fire coming out of every hole in this elephant. <laughs> I assume it's butt too, but we can't see that. Well, yeah, it's it's a one quarter view. Uh <laughs> Uh, so there was actually um, a fourth building that was rumored as well, um, which was supposed to be even bigger than the Elephant Hotel. Mm -hmm. this, um, this is an elephant stepping on the White House. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a prequel to Independence Day. And apparently this was uh, actually proposed for the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. Mm -hmm. I am a bit unclear on if Lafferty was actually involved or if it was just like talk about him licensing out his patent. I couldn't really find a lot on it. But apparently this version's proposal was to have a moving trunk, moving eyeballs, moving ears, a moving tail, and then it was going to have a calliope in its throat so it could, you know, talk. Y'all know there are other animals, right? <laughs> there, there are other animals. Yo, this isn't just a U.S. fascination. Elephant buildings were being built elsewhere. Just gonna say. But unfortunately, this was not made. <laughs> unfortunately, sure, sure. So, um, by 1887, uh, Lafferty was struggling with money. Because he couldn't think of a second animal. Because unfortunately, apparently he didn't have enough insurance out on the Coney Island elephant to, like, make a profit. Well, actually, I guess it burned after this. So never mind. He just needed it to burn sooner. Yeah. Life would have been okay. But yeah, he, he was struggling. So he sold Lucy to Anson Gertzen, who was also from Philadelphia. And uh, Gertzen loved to visit New Jersey. Um, who doesn't? And so he, he would also often go there on vacation. And around this time, he was um, buying several properties to relocate his family. Mm -hmm. And he bought Lucy and the property she stood on and a whole bunch of other stuff. And now he was the owner. <laughs> Congratulations. So they, you, you own a piece of dirt that's only good for looking at. Well, his family allowed people to like go up and look at it. But it actually wasn't until after he died that his son, John, started charging visitors 10 cents to tour the inside. <laughs> <laughs> and visit the observatory, which did very well, actually. Good job. You, um, you finally figured it out. You cracked the code. Uh, it was John's wife, Sophia, actually, who was the one credited with naming it Lucy the Elephant. Oh, that's nice. Yes. Um, and it would remain in their family um, until the 1970s. Um, over the years, Lucy and the surrounding property... Um, Served as a restaurant, offices, a cottage, a tavern. Apparently, for some time, the Turkish pavilion from the 1876 Centennial Exhibition in Philadelphia was built behind Lucy. Mm -hmm. Like, the family bought it and reconstructed it there. 
Because when I think of Turkey, I think of elephants and vice versa. Um, they had like a beer garden in there and then people could like go up Lucy as well and all the <laughs> stuff. And so they, they turned it into a whole little like tourist attraction, mm-hmm. which this was an area that was being built up. It's on the coast, like yeah. it's a tourist spot. Through the years that uh, Pavilion was also like a nightclub, they had gambling, it was uh, later on when things were not so great, they turned it into a rooming house. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of different changes of what everything was. Hey, uh, what's your address, pal? I can't remember, but you'll know it when you see it. Elephant. <laughs> uh, so by 1969, Lucy was in pretty bad shape. Uh, and she was scheduled for demolition as the property she was on was sold to developers. So the building was moved to Coney Island, the traditional elephant hotel burying ground. (laughs) (laughs) No. Uh, So a group from the city formed the Margate Civic Association, which would later become the Save Lucy Committee. (laughs) The family donated Lucy to the city with the understanding that they had to move her or clean it all up if she fell apart during the process. (laughs) And so they were able to raise enough money, and in July uh, 1970, they moved Lucy 100 yards to a city-owned lot um, and got to work on refurbishment. It took about four years. Uh, Lucy was finally reopened to visitors in 1974, um, and she would actually be designated a National Historic Landmark uh, two years later in 1976. And she is in operation. You can go. <laughs> Lucy's there. She's she's chilling. She's looking good. Apparently every year on uh, her birthday of when she was reopened, they do a birthday party. Oh, happy birthday, um, Lucy. Every year they repaint her toenails a different color. And like <laughs> guests can vote throughout the year on what color her toenails will be. That's adorable, though. <laughs> yes. Apparently, uh, during the last presidential election, she she ran. She's over 35, born in America. She's qualified. Mm-hmm. That's all I'm yeah, going to say. Yeah. And she's also been struck by lightning. <laughs> That's the third qualification, and, and survived actually. survived multiple hurricanes. Lucy is indestructible. <laughs> Unlike all the buildings built in her likeness. It, it's the, the degradation, you know, the loss, you know, taking copies of copies. Yeah. Yeah. The original stands strong. Uh, so, so that's one of our attractions. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the other uh, things we're, we're going to go on this grand tour is we're going to see some of the last remaining rotary jails. This is where the rotary club gets sent if, if they get out of hand? No. Okay. You want to take another guess? Does the jail actually rotate? Yes. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so a rotary Jail was a short-lived design for a jail that mm-hmm. was used in the Midwest U.S. Uh, during the 19th century. Back when Michel Foucault was really into motorcycling. Uh, so the jail was a circle, and each cell was a wedge. Mm-hmm. And it was on a platform that rotated like a carousel with a hand crank and gears beneath it. <laughs> and then there was only one opening... Mm-hmm. So only one cell could be accessed at a time. Right. So so you, you can't bust out if there's no door. Yeah. Ah. And it meant ah. that you could have less staff. You're only dealing with so many people being able to escape at once. So it, it's like the, the radial design in a sense, but just 
a, a little more labor intense, a little, a little bit of that rack and pinion technology. Yes. Uh, so the initial design was by architect William H. Brown, and he got a patent for it in 1881. It's a very popular year for patents. Sure. Uh, and his patent said, The object of our invention is to produce a jail in which prisoners can be controlled without the necessary necessity of personal contact between them and the jailer or guard. It consists first of a circular cell structure of considerable size divided into several cells capable of being rotated. The patent also said that other shapes were possible, so technically... They really struggled with the square. The square was hard. Uh, so the jail did have some luxuries, such as indoor plumbing. Uh -huh. uh, a sanitary system ran through the core of the jail, which was incredibly rare, mm -hmm. you know, in 1882. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it had a lot of problems, um, such as inmates having their limbs crushed by as the cell, like, rotated. Lots of problems, including being jail. Uh, well, and, you know, having your limb amputated. I'm pretty sure that's not what the judge said should have happened to them. Yeah, so, you know, you're, you're, you're napping, <laughs> and your arm kind of falls out, and then suddenly they said they need to talk to John. <laughs> um, that also, you know, led to other issues of, like, making the cell get stuck. Mm-hmm. Because now there's a limb in there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You, you gotta really crank it to grind that out. Yep. It'll fall make, out the bottom. Make some pies. So there's also, though, a danger, you know, like, fire. Like, mm -hmm. how are you going to get everyone out? And there was also a lack of good ventilation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, within... There's rotting man parts in the gear, <laughs> baking in the sun, and you're just smelling it all well, day. It's not really baking in the sun, because, like, these weren't, like, outside. So, like, this was, like, in a building. Mm-hmm. You have this carousel jail cell nice. thing. <laughs> the carousel of regress. So it kind of... It's like there's a, a think like a big like scary fence around the circle that's inside a building. There's a great big beautiful tomorrow, but you will never see another day. We have pictures. You can look. <laughs> <laughs> well, and like one, so like an example of one of them was actually it was like a round building. So like you have like circular cells mm -hmm. with the circular grating around it, and then they built a building circular around that too. And then in another instance, the circular jail was inside, like, a big multi-story square building. So, so when prison abolitionists say jail is a machine for crushing people, it's, they're very is, literal in some cases. This is what they mean! This is it! It didn't, didn't have a great track record. <laughs> so within a few years, uh, most of them were welded into a fixed position and refitted with individual access to each cell. Yeah, it went from a rotary jail to a panopticon. That's nice. But not all of them. <laughs> um, so up to 18 of these were built. Mm -hmm. uh, and the first rotary jail was in Montgomery County, Indiana um, in 1882. This jail operated until 1973. And it was still rotating through 1930. Yeah. Sounds great. It was, like, one of those things where they kept, like, talking about closing it down, mm -hmm. but they didn't. <laughs> they just kept leaving prisoners in it. Um, and then there's another one in Pottawatomie County, at the Pottawatomie County Jail in Council Bluffs, Iowa. Um, and they called it the Squirrel Cage Jail. 
Uh-huh, uh-huh. And their baseball team, what's the mascot? I don't know. It's the Gophers, actually. It really, really zagged on you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this one was built in 1885, and it was very different from all the rest because it was three stories tall. It was three rotating carousels. That is a video game puzzle waiting to happen. You gotta line up the shapes just right. So, and then it was um, apparently the, like, guard apartments Mm -hmm. were then on top of that. Mm -hmm. But they had to change that because the stench from the, like, sanitary system would rise... And it was very smelly up there. Mm-hmm. So they ended up taking over um, one of the other floors <laughs> uh, because it was it was too smelly. So this one, this three-story tall jail, stayed in operation a really long freaking time, too. Apparently, as early as 1910, the county board of supervisors tried to get a new jail built, but... They couldn't get the votes. People were like, no, we don't need a new one. It's fine. We're not going to put money towards that. Mm-hmm. And so this jail stayed in operation. It wasn't until 1960 that the rotary was disabled. What? <laughs> um, and that was after a prisoner died of natural causes and a malfunction prevented them from getting the body for two days. Mm-hmm. So it was just sitting there. Uh-huh. Wait, waiting for you to dial nine on your rotary phone. Uh-huh. Uh, cool, cool, cool. And so after that, they're like, mm, nope, no more rotation. But it was still a jail until 1969. That's not very nice. Um, and you can visit both of these places. <laughs> we will link the pages for you. Yeah, you too can go see the jail. The, the, the jail that, that was built so bad that, that uh, its staff would rather stay in the bottom oh, yeah. cells than on... <laughs> Then up top, above yeah. it, because yeah. it smelled. Yeah. Uh, so our next place uh, we are going to go to is we are going to go to the Farmer's Museum in Coopersville, New York, to learn about the Cardiff Giant. This is a wild itinerary, because you've taken me from, like, <laughs> the, the um, New Jersey, Philadelphia region to Iowa, and now back to New York? We are traveling by map. It doesn't f***ing matter. <laughs> uh, the Cardiff Giant was one of the biggest hoaxes in American history. In 1868, George Hull of New York created a plan to create the Cardiff Giant. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was, was this a patented plan? Did he have <laughs> exclusive rights to other forms of giants as well? No. Okay. There would be a lawsuit later. We'll get to that. Uh, he was apparently an atheist and got into an argument with others about the part in Genesis that talks about the giants who once lived on Earth. If if you want to really steam your noodle, read the book of Enoch. That's where the fun stuff is. (laughs) So he was all like, I'm going to prove you all wrong. Mm -hmm. Make you think there's a giant, but there's not. Uh, so he decided to create a 10 foot tall petrified man that was going to be discovered the next year. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Now, during this time, there were various newspapers um, publishing claims of petrified people. Mm -hmm. Uh, In 1858, there was one in the Alta California paper that said a prospector had been petrified when he drank a liquid within a geode. (laughs) First off, there's no liquid inside geodes. I don't know if it's that they're like, oh, there was a liquid in there or like a broken geode had liquid like 
pool. Okay, that. And could then happen. he was like, "Ooh, I'm gonna drink this," and they're like, "You shouldn't have, because that geode's poisonous." And second, drinking liquids out of geodes is the the dream of everyone under the age of thirty five. <laughs> I just want it as like bookends. Oh uh, well, you're coasters. You're wise beyond your years, dear. Uh, so he hired men to quarry out a 10 foot long block of gypsum mm-hmm. from Fort Dodge, Iowa. Uh, and he said he was going to have a statue of Lincoln made. <laughs> sure. Why not? So the block was shipped sh- to Chicago where Edward Burgart, a German stone cutter, um, was sworn to secrecy and carved the giant. <laughs> They uh, used a lot of different stains and acids on it to make it look weathered. Sure, yeah. Um, They also beat it with a bunch of steel needles to stimulate pores. (laughs) Simulate, not stimulate, simulate. Yeah, I I get beat with steel needles to stimulate my pores, but that's extra when I go for a facial. Yeah. Yeah. He spent about $2,600 on this, which is about like $50,000 now. I'll show those fellas down at the club for their biblical interpretation, and it'll only take my life saving. He was a tobacco dude. Like, he was rich. It was fine. Uh, so in November 1868, he transported it by rail to the farm of his cousin, William Noel. Mm-hmm. And about a year later, he hired two men, uh, Gideon Emmons and Henry Nichols, to dig a well. And this was on October 16th, 1869. And that is where they found the giant. And the people that he was originally having his argument with forgot about it years ago. <laughs> they could not care less. It has been a couple years. You know, this this caused a lot of, like, commotion. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, mm-hmm. what is this? And what's going on? And they, you know, they brought it out. And his cousin set up a tent and began charging 25 cents for people to view it, which did very well. So he doubled it within two days. Well, good, because if he's charging a quarter, it's going to take 10,000 visitors before he even comes close to cracking even. Well, this is his cousin. He didn't spend any money. (laughs) All right, you're right. The the, the cousin is running pure profit. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, so he upped it to 50 cents. Uh, Now, the public bought it. Completely. Mm-hmm. But, you know, other people pronounced it as a fake. And it was also noted that there was, like, absolutely no reason to dig a well where they were digging a well. Uh, maybe they were thirsty. Ever think of that? Like, not a place you're going to get water. Maybe they were really, really thirsty. <laughs> a well would be better in, like, five other places on this property. <laughs> so it was, you know... Stirring a lot of, of interest, and Hull uh, would sell his part, like ownership, um, which like no one apparently questioned why he owned any of this when it belonged to his cousin's property. But yeah, <laughs> uh, and he would sell it for twenty three thousand dollars to a group of men headed by David Hannum, uh, and they moved uh, the Cardiff Giant to Syracuse, New York, for exhibition. Mm-hmm. And it was so popular that P.T. Barnum offered to buy it for $50,000. But they refused. Mm -hmm. So P.T. Barnum, not wanting to be outdone, (laughs) hired someone to make his own fake replica of it. I can lie better than you. And he quickly displayed it in New York where he said that he had the real giant and what they had was actually fake. He really can lie better than them. It's true. So uh, Hannah, not wanting to deal with this, decided to sue Barnum, Mm -hmm. saying, you know, suing him for saying that it was a fake. Right. And the judge was like, well, can you giant 
your giant swear to being authentic? (laughs) (laughs) Most petrified things can't. I've never tried to put petrified wood in a fireplace, but I bet it wouldn't work. (laughs) What if it talks? What if the crackling noise was like, help me? And then you're like, oh my god! Never mind, I need a drink. Bring bring me my geodes. (laughs) (laughs) So in December 1869, Hull confessed to the press that, you know, he created it and it was fake. Mm -hmm. In February, when they were back in court, it was revealed that, you know, both giants were fake. Right. And the judge ruled that, you know, no one could sue Barnum for saying that a fake was a fake. Yeah, but his was a faker fake, though. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Um, So even with all that, Harnum's giant was displayed at the 1901 Pan American Exposition in New York. Under what label? (laughs) Because if there's like a sculpture exhibition, sure. (laughs) I am not sure, actually. (laughs) Or just the wonders of gypsum, I guess. (laughs) Uh, So it would soon after be bought by Iowa, Iowa publisher Gardner Cowles Jr., who would put it in his basement and use it as a coffee table and conversation piece. (laughs) Those are not fun conversations. Okay, so here's the thing with the statue. It's got some prominently carved junk. (laughs) 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 Which I think makes it all the better that it was a coffee table and conversation piece. Because there's just... This is a family show, I can't say it, but there's just things. You can just scrape the mud off your boot on that. It's very functional. (laughs) And so uh, after that, in uh, 1947, it was the the Farmer's Museum in Cooperstown, New York, got ownership. Mm -hmm. The the most famous museum in Cooperstown, New York. (laughs) So the Farmer's Museum site um, has actually been part of a working farm since 1813, uh, Mm -hmm. when it was owned by James Fenmore Cooper, author of The Last of the Mohicans. Mm-hmm. Like the farmland was sold um, in 1870s to the Clark family, who like were really freaking filthy rich from being half the owners of the patent for the Singer sewing machine. Mm-hmm. Then it eventually became the museum in 1944. So it is on display there. You can go visit it. But if you're like, hey, you know what? I'm really not that into that one. Because I really think that Barnum was actually telling the truth. (laughs) Guess what? You can go see that one. How well endowed is that one? Equally so? They have a strategically placed sign. Ah. So I can't tell. Okay. Actually. Um, But that one. It's like a comedy movie. (laughs) That one is on display at Marvin's Marvelous Mechanical Museum in Farmington Hills, Michigan. (laughs) Ha ha. Uh, and this is an arcade and, like, oddities collection of, like, coin, uh, coin-operated uh, animatronic dummies and games and stuff. Mm-hmm. It actually looks really cool. If you put a slot in, in the uh, giant, it it just takes your coin. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, ap- apparently, it is towards the back of the museum, very close to the ladies' restroom. Um, but everything within that... Uh, so it's also a creep. <laughs> After all of this, they made it a creeper. Everything within this uh, museum was personally collected by Marvin Yagoda um, over 60 years, and he founded this museum um, and, like, arcade. And he was actually considered an expert in the field of these, you know, different types of animatronic mechanical video games. Or Mm -hmm. not video games, vintage games. 
Um, he died in 2017, but his son is continuing the museum, so you can also go visit it. But you know what? If neither one of those are really cutting it, mm-hmm. you can see a replica of it uh, at the Fort Museum in Frontier Village in Fort Dodge, Iowa. Before it burns down on Coney Island, I guess. <laughs> I guess. So yeah, those, those are some of um, parts of history I wanted to share with everyone today. Mm-hmm. But we cannot um, end this episode without talking about one more thing. <laughs> <laughs> Something that you decided not to put in the outline. I but, wasn't going to like fully research it. But it's still been haunting the back of your eyeballs. Just, okay, so in my search for like what roadside attractions and places do I want to talk about? I found out that there is a Precious Moments theme park? <laughs> Place? Attraction? Mm-hmm. Attraction, yeah. Uh, so if you're not familiar, Precious Moments is a very strange uh, series of collectibles. Yeah. A, very a, popular. A collectible range of... Ceramic c- Ceramic children. children. Usually in the guise of angels or, or there's, there's young children of- that have skinned their knees or are being particularly cute. Yeah, there's also, like, a Disney line. Of course. Because there's, like, any type of collectible has a Disney line. Oh, yeah. But a lot of dead kids, really, is what, it, what Precious Moments is. A lot of angel is. children. I actually have a bunch of it, because that was, like, a thing that was gifted to me a lot as a child. And I liked them then, but now I just realize how creepy they are. <laughs> really cute animal designs. The animals are adorable. But but about this uh, chapel and visitor yes. center. As, as they so, call it. So, uh, the artist and creator of the Precious Moments line, very religious dude, mm-hmm. long story short, was like, God is telling me to open this Precious Moments chapel. Mm-hmm. And so, I have some notes here. <laughs> we, have, we have a handwritten <laughs> addendum to our outline. Yes. Uh, so he opened this chapel and visitor center in 1989, Mm -hmm. and, uh, the main part of it is the chapel, which doesn't, like, as far as I can tell, host any type of, like, church service. Oh, you mean people don't get married there? I looked up if that was included in the (laughs) events, and it's not. There was nothing about getting married there. (laughs) But the the chapel, the artist guy, was inspired by the Sistine Chapel and wanted to, like, recreate it, but Precious Moments (laughs) version. So the chapel, specifically Hallelujah Square, was in it. But it's it's got 84 murals Mm -hmm. over 9,000 square feet with 30 stained glass windows, all of it depictions of, like, Heaven and Bible stories, but as precious moments. With these big-headed, sad children. Yes. Yes. And the Hallelujah Square mural Mm -hmm. is a really big depiction of, uh, let me quote this, heaven through the eyes of a child, which sounds awful. (laughs) Yeah, I don't want kids seeing heaven. Like, can we stop killing the children? This guy painted dead children (laughs) likenesses. As precious moments into it. Mm-hmm. Also included his own brother oh. as like a janitor. Oh. But I don't know if his brother was actually dead or not ah. at the time. <laughs> Heaven's janitor. But like so much of like the description about it is like children being reunited with their parents when their parents finally die too, basically. Oh boy. It's so messed up. It's real messed up. 
This explains so much to me about the uh, intended uh, market, the, the demographic for Precious Moments figurines. Um, so there's also um, a garden. There is a gift shop in a little Precious Moments village. There is an, a, like a kind of a archive mm-hmm. and a Christmas shop. There's also costumed characters. Yes, there were <laughs> costume characters. Um, and I feel like we can't not mention them. Who would walk through the gardens where there were fountains of like precious moments angels like spitting water out of their mouth. <laughs> you can also buy a brick for $200 and have it engraved and put like there. Because you want to be a permanent part of the precious moments chapel and visitor center. Yes. And to this day, it is still there. You can go, though apparently um, as of 2007, they did have to start closing some aspects of it mm-hmm. due to a drop in attendance. Um, but the chapel's still there. I don't know if you'll see a costume character. I bet you can still get a mean funnel cake there, though. Every attraction needs to have funnel cake. You know, I didn't see anything about like if they serve food. <laughs> They could really bounce back if they just open a churro cart. That's all I'm saying. Costco did me wrong last weekend. <laughs> they got rid of our churros. How dare they? Yep. But uh, yeah, so this is this is our little tour. Mm-hmm. Our little vacation. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you feel uh, well-rested and informed. Mm-hmm. Where is? Uh, Missouri. It's in Missouri. Uh, by the Ozarks. Okay. So darling, what'd you learn? This episode, the, these um, the, these vignettes sh- shine a light on what I think are very distinctly American attitudes. <laughs> like you've got a land developer who never did anything with this land, apparently, but let people look at it <laughs> and find out a way to, like, make people look at it. <laughs> Maybe then pay for it. Or or this colossus that started with a person getting way too invested in his own spite and then recouping his investment ten times. <laughs> but that wasn't enough. He had to go to the courts to prove that his was the real fake. Well, remember, those were two different guys. Okay, but still. <laughs> the ability to find or make something very strange and then just not have another idea just ways to to sell that idea more and more. Even taking something as, as hideous as this prison design of the future that is actually a gigantic torture device, <laughs> even more than your average prison, uh-huh. and turn that into a, an attraction that you can see for, for money. <laughs> it feels very distinctly American. Because these are very much things that are very, like, American road trip. Yeah, yeah. Like... This, this isn't what you go on a trip, but this is the type of crap you come across. Yeah. The, and th- I is... really wonder, like, every tourist location will have tourist traps. Mm-hmm. But you kind of wonder, like, in other certain other countries, like, does it go to the extreme we do? <laughs> I mean, in, in other countries that have real history that goes more than 300 years back. People go to castles yeah. and stuff. <laughs> And yeah, then there's like a, a, a gift shop that's probably going to sell you crap to get your money, mm-hmm. but it's still a castle. <laughs> Not like, oh, th- this is a, a ventriloquist dummy carved of whalebone and it knows all of the slurs. Like, what? Why? Why is that a thing? <laughs> I think I love the most is that Lucy 
is like a national historic (laughs) designated place (laughs) right there on the same like plane as the statue of liberty and like all these other things Mm -hmm. just an elephant they don't even have bathrooms like literally they're frequently asked questions is like do you have bathrooms and they're like well, when the beach is going in the summer, there's some right next door. But when it's not, we can direct you to the closest one because we don't have them. Do you have bathrooms? No, but there's a Starbucks a quarter mile away. <laughs> and I love it. I love it so much. That That's why the hotel version didn't stick because, as, as I realized later on, there's no way that had pipes running through. <laughs> There's no way that the big one had had sinks or flushing. So before things get worse, I think we should take a break and come back with letters. Okay. Welcome back, everybody. Hello. And we are back with those letters we mentioned. Yes. Our first comes in from Seth, who is happy to see that we're back. And we're happy to see that you're back. Everybody's happy. It's all good. Uh, And thank you for the pair of uh, episode suggestions. Uh, We will definitely take those in the big secret pile of episode suggestions. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks very much, Seth. Peter writes in and shares a very cute animal picture of... Peter's favorite cat, which is the Palace Wild Cat. Yes. Uh, I love it. <laughs> it's so good. They just look like they're screaming into your soul. They they got very sour dispositions. At least that's what their faces yes. suggest. As, as Peter says, you can tell it hates you with every fiber of its being. They are spite-powered cats. And Peter loves them for it. And I, I love them, too. I don't think it's quite true, but they definitely have a grumpy face. <sighs> Thanks, Peter. They're so cute. Arp also sends pictures of a cat. Of, of Yeah. But their own cat uh, is Muffin. Muffin. Oh, thank you very much. Isaac also sends us some cat pictures. Yeah. They're very cute. So cute. Uh, and also answers some prompts. Uh, our favorite food mascot prompt. You have to do that episode. Eventually yeah. I have to do that because people got favorite food mascots. Uh, so, uh, for Isaac, it is Ronald McDonald, uh, but exclusively for his appearance in the early days of Mi- Dr. McNinja? Sure, why not? Do you not? know Dr. McNinja? It's a webcomic. Oh, okay. Or was. I, I think it's over now. Okay. Uh, and Isaac also likes the Jack in the Box guy, which I don't know what he looks like because we don't have Jack in he the Box. He looks like a Jack in the Box. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, and then for the 100th episode prompt, where we said, oh, ask us stuff if you want, and mm-hmm. people really took that to heart, because <laughs> we've gotten questions. Um, I guess we'll just have to do a 100th episode then. Oh, wait. So Isaac wants to know how you feel about Lancer the Tabletop RPG. I mean, I'm a Kickstarter backer. I haven't had a chance to play it yet, but I think it's great that there is a, like tactically interesting grid-based game out there that has some wild ideas and such incredible art I, i'm so happy that it exists and hopefully I'll, go, I'll get to play it sometime also last shooting is right up in the mix with the lancer books on popular things sorted by the mech tag on hey. <laughs> which hey someone there. else saw and sent to me and like wait 
Above Beam Saber? Uh, wait, uh, above uh, uh, Armor Aster? What? That doesn't seem right. That's not real. <laughs> These are good things. <laughs> so uh, thank you, Isaac. Kevin also provides... Uh, not a cat picture. But a dog picture. <gasps> dog picture. A dog named Wooly, which is, uh, I'll say, accurate. Yeah. What a bunch of fluff and stuff you've got there. <laughs> Thank you very much, Kevin. Jeff writes in, in regards to our deaf education episode, Jeff shares that he went to the Rochester Institute of Technology, which is actually a place where a family member of mine used to work many years ago. Huh, okay. Uh, And uh, Rochester Institute of Technology uh, also has the National Technological Institute for the Deaf. Uh, And because of that, many of Jeff's engineering classes had ASL interpreters. Um, And there was also a lot of support that ran very deep in the campus, such as having um, on-campus jobs to transcribe notes from classes for students, um, because, you know, it's kind of hard to take notes and watch sign at the same time. Right, right. Um, And also uh, services that uh, helped hearing students interact with deaf students over the phone, because that's kind of before texting was a thing. (laughs) Um, And the president even signed the commencement speech, which is really awesome. Mm -hmm. Love that. Uh, And Jeff shared a picture of Phineas. Oh, tromping through the woods. Yes. So thank you, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. Tom writes in to talk about a couple of books uh, they they read in the last year that connect to our most recent episode on the Benin Bronzes. Uh, The the first is a travel memoir, Looking for Trans Wonderland Travels in Nigeria, uh, by Na Sarawiwa. She is the daughter of Nigerian environmental activist Ken Sarawiwa. And the, the book follows her journey from, from England, where she was born and raised, back to Nigeria to, to follow her family life, follow, follow her heritage, and get a sense of Nigerian life and culture, uh, including an episode uh, in her travels where she visits Benin City and, and tries to get a tour of the Oba's Palace. Mm. Uh, the second book is Black and British, A Forgotten History by David Olasoga, which, which is a history with wider breadth, you know, not, not a personal memoir, uh, charting black people and ideas of blackness in Britain, in uh, the colonies of, of Britain, uh, from Roman times up to, you know, the contemporary modern day. Following uh, not only, you know, facts and figures, but also the lived experience of the people that, uh, of whom he writes. Mm-hmm. So if you'd like to know more about uh, uh, the grander scale of either, you know, the, the uh, descendants of what is now Nigeria and the land that is now Nigeria or even broader blackness through history, mm-hmm. uh, those are some great book recommendations. So thank you, Tom. Uh, also, Tom does a fantastic uh, um, podcast himself. Well, not himself. Uh, there, There is a duo involved <laughs> called Flash in the Pan, where the, the two of them talk about Flash animations f- of yesteryear, because that's back when people made them, uh, that I guessed it on during our hiatus, so I didn't get a chance to plug it, I don't ah, think. I don't think so. I don't think I did. Uh, in case I'm wrong and it was before we went on break and I did plug it, I'm plugging it again. Uh, <laughs> they had me on to talk about A Scream of the Shalka, a, a, a BBC webcast of a, a original Doctor Who story. Uh, that stars Richard E. Grant as the Ninth Doctor before there was a television Ninth Doctor. 
So we have a lot of things to say about the story itself. Also, its place in a 50-year television franchise. Mm -hmm. So that, I think, will also be linked down below. So thank you to Tom and to everyone who wrote in. Y'all did a great job without us telling you what to say. See, it can be done. Hey, hey. And it usually involves cats. But darling. Yes. Do you have a prompt for next time? I do. And I want people to send their letters to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. And what prompt do you want them to send in? I want them to talk about uh, any stories they have, questions, uh, uh, any any corrections, and also to answer the prompt of... Uh-huh. I got a rhythm. You can't throw me off. <laughs> I want to know everyone's favorite uh, uh, anarchist. Ooh. Ooh. And like I said, those can go to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. And while you're emailing us, you can also uh, follow us on social media at History Honeys on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Sometimes we actually post on those places. It's a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> You can also uh, leave us a rating and review uh, wherever you listen to our podcast. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It goes a long way to help people find us. And if you really want to help people find us, you find the people and you tell them. That is right. Word of mouth is a powerful, powerful tool. In fact, it is the most powerful tool we have. Yep. It's called community. Or forcing your friends to listen to the stuff you listen to. That's a definition of community, I guess. <laughs> Uh, also, it's my birthday. We didn't mention it. It's his birthday! But this episode is being uploaded on the 4th of August, which is my birthday. So, like, you have to do all these things because it's his birthday, and you have to, like, be nice to him. What I ask for people on my birthday is, is generally... Some, Nothing. Some combination of just be excellent to one another, uh, be, be mindful of the world in which you live, and, uh, how much power you do have to affect change, and how... Uh, strong those changes can be on on even the, the interpersonal scale. But more specifically, this year, I'd like you to listen to the uh, Six Feet Under episode that I teased, on, that, that I said was coming in the last episode, but now it's out and, and linkable in the show notes where, where we play Last Shooting. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good episode. I really like how it turned out. See, when I ask him what he wants, he just tells me nothing. Well, I know you're not going to listen to Six Feet Under, so I, I figure, why? what's the harm? I did get him to pick out a cake. <laughs> and that took all of my effort. It's practically begging him in the grocery store to put a cake in the cart. So with that, I'm Grant. <laughs> and I'm Elena. And history's better with, with your honey. honey. Happy birthday. Happy birthday.